Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Do Theology Reacts. But today, it's just Jeremy, just me. Ken is still very busy, so it'll just be me reacting today. And instead of reacting to some things that are objectively crazy or heretical or whatever, uh, I'm actually going to be looking at a couple statements from Brothers in Christ who have made statements that you're about to hear that I agree with, totally agree with. And uh, I want to affirm what they're saying, but I also want to recognize that the way that they're arguing has implications for their theology, all right? And uh, and not in a bad way, but we're going to look at the way that they're arguing for certain things and then say, wait a second, if you were to, to stay on that line of reasoning, stay on that method of interpretation and that, that hermeneutic, you're going to end up somewhere in the realm of secondary doctrine that would actually put you more in line with, with me, because these are Reformed brothers that we're going to be hearing from, and uh, I'm not Reformed in that sense. I'm, I'm a dispensationalist, uh, as is Ken, and that means we differ in hermeneutics. However, what you're about to hear is that these Reformed brothers, when, when discussing issues that are of primary importance— when talking about primary doctrine, when looking at history, we actually share the same hermeneutic. It's when we move into secondary doctrine that their hermeneutic changes. We keep that hermeneutic as we go into secondary doctrine. They change the hermeneutic. All that might may sound a little complicated. So let's let me show you what what I mean just by playing uh, these clips. So the first one we're going to look at is Al Mohler at the Southern Baptist Annual Convention in Anaheim that just took place last month. And uh, this is when the Credentials Committee was announcing uh, the results of their discussion about Rick Warren's church. Rick Warren's church has been ordaining women, giving women the office of pastor uh, in title and in function. Rick Warren's church has just hired Rick Warren's replacement, which is a man and his wife. His uh, the the wife um, ha- holds the title of pastor right now at the church where that they're leaving, headed to Rick Warren's church. And Rick Warren's church is a Southern Baptist church. Well, the Southern Baptist Convention has made a stance in their doctrinal statement, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. They've articulated their stance that they are against women pastors, the idea of women pastors, because the Bible, particularly the New Testament, precludes women from holding the office of pastor. Ken and I did a video on this uh, about gender roles. You can search for that if you're curious. We made it short, so you could listen to that in 10 or 12 minutes, something like that. We believe that this is a primary issue, the issue of gender roles, that God has made this abundantly clear, this doctrine of the role of men and women in the home and church. He has made that doctrine clear. It transcends any type of hermeneutical approach that we, we place onto the text. And uh, as you'll hear, Al Mohler comes to the microphone in response to the Credentials Committee, and he will use a contextual, grammatical, historical hermeneutic uh, to defend the Bible's clear teaching of this doctrine. 
All right, so that's what we're gonna look at first. Um, I'm gonna pause this along the way and uh, make some comments. This is also going to be playing at 1.25 speed on my end, just so you know. All right, so first here is the, uh, the lady who is speaking for the credentials committee. I don't know her name, sorry. Uh, but she is, as a hit play, she's going to be saying what their findings are regarding Saddleback Church and what the Southern Baptist Convention should do. And it's important that we listen to their argumentation because that sets the stage, of course, for Al Mohler's response to her and the Credentials Committee. Based on the information available to us currently, including direct communication with Pastor Rick Warren, who was so gracious in answering our questions regarding faith and practice, we have concluded that we are not yet prepared to make a recommendation regarding Saddleback Church, recognizing that there are differing opinions regarding the intent of the office of pastor, as stated in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. All right, so she's making reference to that doctrinal statement that Southern Baptists all share, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. It's 2000 because that's when it was put together, it was the year 2000. All right, so she's saying, look, there are different opinions about the intent of the word pastor as found in that doctrinal statement. We talked to Rick Warren uh, and the people there that are involved, and they say, look, you know, that word pastor can be taken multiple ways. And so as we look at the doctrinal statement and we, we read it, uh, you know, we can read our interpretation of the word pastor into that doctrinal statement. And then, you know, we fit, we're fine. We fit right into that doctrinal statement because, you know, uh, anybody can define pastor however they want. And then we can just say, we agree with the statements in the Baptist faith and message 2000. And the Credentials Committee says, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, we, we don't have a, an ironclad definition of pastor in the Baptist faith and message. So, uh, yeah, maybe you guys could read your definition into it and be okay. So the Credentials Committee is saying, yeah, we, we realize there are legitimate differences of interpretation when it comes to the Baptist faith and message 2000s use of the word pastor. Therefore, we are coming today asking for a study committee to provide clarity regarding this matter. We feel it is very important for you to know that it is the unanimous opinion of the Credentials Committee that the majority of Southern Baptists hold to the belief that the function of lead pastor, elder, bishop, overseer is limited to men as qualified by Scripture and that... Okay. A lot of weird things are being said here. Uh... It's like she's trying to make it sound like it's a strong statement, but it's actually a very weak statement. We want you to know that it's the unanimous view of the credentials committee. Okay, we'll start with that. Every single person on the credentials committee that's been examining this particular issue, every single one of them holds to what she's about to say. All right, so they're in total agreement. It's a unanimous view. Then she says it's the unanimous view of the credentials committee that the majority of Southern Baptist churches. So all of the credentials committee members would affirm that most 
of Southern Baptist churches, okay, those churches affirm that the title of lead pastor or elder or bishop belongs only to qualified men. She didn't say pastor. She said lead pastor. Because there are churches out there that will have male-only elders, but then they'll have a children's pastor who's a woman or a youth pastor who's a woman or a, a minister of music who's a woman. Well, they're not touching on that. And those are made-up categories, by the way. There's The Bible presents to us one category of pastor. And it's, spoiler alert, it's the same as elder or bishop. Okay, so she's saying that Everyone on the credentials committee agrees that the majority of Southern Baptist churches agree that lead pastors are men or should only be men. So it's not really a strong statement at all uh, because uh, when you say the majority of Southern Baptist churches, that could mean 51%, though I don't think that's the case at all. I don't think she means that, means that to be the case. But the, it is a legitimate question. Is it 99%? Is it 90%? There's a big difference between 1% dissent and 10% dissent. And when she uses the title here, reading this statement, I guess it's not her title. This is the committee making this statement. She's just the, the mouthpiece. Does lead pastor mean something different than pastor? That's also a legitimate question. So, yeah, not, there are a lot of things to talk about there, but I digress. All right, let's continue. This was the intended definition of office of pastor as stated in Article 6 of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. However, okay, I should have let that little phrase play beforehand. But those same churches that say lead pastor is restricted to men only or elder is restricted to men only, they say that that's the intended meaning found in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. I guess saying that when the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 refers to pastor, it's only referring to lead pastor or elder. So the question of children's pastor, youth pastor, music pastor, worship pastor, whatever, that, that's all fair game in Southern Baptist churches, according to the Credentials Committee. I don't know. I don't know. Well, despite of the majority of Southern Baptist churches seeing lead pastor or elder being restricted to men, she goes on to say, however... Ever. The Credentials Committee has found little information evidencing the convention's belief regarding the use of the title of pastor for staff positions with differing responsibilities and authority than that of lead pastor. For this reason, the Credentials Committee moves that the following recommendation be adopted. The Credentials Committee recommends that the Southern Baptist Convention during its June 14, 15, 2022 annual meeting in Anaheim, California, form a study committee the members of which shall be appointed by the president to report to the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting June 13th and 14th, 2023 in New Orleans, Louisiana, a recommendation to provide clarity regarding the office of pastor, as stated in the Baptist Faith and Message Article 6, the church. Given the many different offices within Baptist churches, which include pastor in the title, though often with very different responsibilities and authority. Mr. President, that concludes our report and our recommendation to this great convention. All right. So, um, yeah, they're, they're, they just came out and said it. Um, so, 
there are lots of churches that have lots of different pastors that do lots of different things. And look, Rick Warren has never made a woman the lead pastor. Rick Warren's church, Saddleback Church, has not hired the new pastor's wife to be the lead pastor. He's going to be the lead pastor, and she's going to be the sidekick pastor or whatever made-up category they have. So let's make a committee that will get into the details and provide us that ironclad definition of what a pastor is. Let's kick the can down the road, as uh, Tom Askell said in my interview with him after this convention. Let's just let's just form some kind of committee and see if we can figure out what the word uh, pastor means, because uh, uh, we, we we just don't know. That's basically what the credentials committee is saying. Well, then what happened is um, Bill Askell was at the microphone, and uh, he was recognized by the president of the Southern Baptist Convention at that time, Ed Litton, and. Uh, basically, Bill Askell said, you know what, I'm going to yield my time to uh, this man standing right here. That's Al Mohler. And so Al Mohler comes to the microphone, and now listen to what he has to say in response to what the Credentials Committee lady just said. Here he comes. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I, I just come to this microphone in the event that it is in order for me to speak. I'm speaking as a messenger of the Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. I served on the committee that brought the Baptist faith and message in 2000 that was overwhelmingly adopted by this convention. My concern is as a churchman, a theologian, and uh, someone who loves this convention as I know everyone in this room does. If we eventually have to form a study committee over every word in our confession of faith, then we're doomed and we're no longer a confessional people. All right. Well, that's a pretty strong statement. Uh, he says, look, I was there. So if you want to know um, what we had in mind, just ask. I think it's kind of what's, what's implied. I was there when we made the Baptist faith and message. So just ask me what the definition is. Um but but then he goes on to make a really good point. Look, if we have to make a committee to provide a definition for every single word, j- just whenever there's a controversy, we're just going to give in and say, hey, we don't know what words mean anymore. So let's form a committee and let's perhaps play some revisionist history and go back and redefine words so that we have a broader tent in our denomination. He's saying, look, if we're going to do that, uh, we're doomed. And I agree. I agree with him. So the answer is actually one of uh, a hermeneutics. It's a, it's a hermeneutics issue here uh, because um, you have an original intent of the authors of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Those people who got together, who formed that doctrinal statement, had an intent behind the words they used in the doctrinal statement. So you can't just form a committee to make up a new definition of those words. You can ask the authors themselves. A lot of them are still alive. At least Al Mohler is. I don't know who all was on that committee, but you can ask them. That's a great benefit of a doctrinal statement that was formed just 22 years ago. A lot of the authors are still alive, and you can ask them all, all sorts of things about what they meant. Or you can do your best uh, to study what they could have possibly meant. If you're not going to ask them directly, you can at least study and say, okay, well, here are the men. This is what they said. These are the verse references they used. Is there any way that they actually meant that women could be pastors outside of the lead pastor category? 
And the answer, of course, is going to be no. Of course not. That is not what they meant at all. And so why do you have to form a committee to try to figure out if that's the intent when it's quite plain and obvious that that was not the intent? You see, words have meanings. Words have meanings. And we want to discover the meaning of words when we interpret something. Whether that's the Bible, whether that's a historical document, whatever it is, you're searching for the meaning of the words, and that's wrapped up in the intent of the author. Are you seeing how maybe this is coming together a little bit <laughs> in the reform versus dispensational conversation? Well, um, President Ed Litton says, well, hold on a second. Uh, Bill Askell said there was a point of order. So what, uh, what did we do that was out of order? You're, you're just making a, a statement here. You need to point out what was out of order. And Al Mohler's like, oh, oops, um, I, I don't really have anything about that. And and Bill Askell's like, yeah, my bad, my bad. Uh, I was just wanting to get Al Mohler to the microphone, basically. And uh, Ed Litton was like, okay, well, Al Mohler, go ahead and talk. I mean, who's going to tell Al Mohler, sit down, right, at the Southern Baptist Convention? So, okay, uh, after they made that little clarification about what was going on, now uh, we're going to hear a little bit more from Al Mohler. Would you stand by, please, just for a second, with all due respect? I will stand by. Thank you. Thank you. So, Dr. Mohler, would you... Your, your microphone number five, I recognize you again to continue speaking to this. Thank you, sir. I certainly want to be in order yes, with sir. the rest of this convention. Yes. I appreciate the opportunity. I'll, I'll make this brief. I also appreciate the good work of the Credentials Committee and the spirit in which they bring this. But I am a confessionalist. This is a confessional denomination. We say what we believe in specific words that are the Baptist faith and message. The moment we start to, of necessity, have study committees to decide what the words mean, the words mean what Southern Baptist said in the year 2000. At that time, the word pastor was used by the committee and adopted by the convention because we were told that is the most easily understood word among Southern Baptists for pastoral teaching leadership. I have to hope we still have that much clarity and that churches that use the word pastor mean it. Mr. Chairman, thank you for this opportunity. All right. So, um, Moeller discloses there simply saying, Everyone knew what the word pastor meant. A pastor is a pastor, someone who has authority in the church and teaches in the church based off the word of God. Uh, that's the only way the word pastor can be used. If you're going to say a youth pastor is less of a pastor or not a real pastor, you're making up categories, okay? You're the one who's out of line, biblically speaking. I think the Babylon Bee had an article some time ago that said uh, youth pastor graduates to, to real pastor or something like that. And that's often how we view it. A youth pastor, associate pastor, music pastor, whatever. Th those aren't real pastors. And sadly, many churches have set it up that way. Uh, those men don't have to be qualified elders to serve in those roles because it's just for kids or it's just for music or whatever. Well, that's just all made up and unhelpful. According to the Bible, there is such a thing as a pastor. That pastor is to be qualified according to the characteristics found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And he may have specific duties in the church if he is one of multiple pastors, but that doesn't make him any less of a pastor, not a real pastor. He is a real pastor. And so if you try to put a woman into one of those positions, even though she might not be the one up front preaching on Sundays, if you're giving her that title, you're still doing something that's anti-biblical because pastors are to be men. 
That's what the Baptist faith and message says. That's what's clear in Scripture. And and Al Mohler is saying, look, you knew that what we you knew what we had in mind. Everyone knows what we had in mind. When we said pastor, we meant pastor. <gasps> Shock and awe, right? Elder qualified men. That's what we meant. That's what we meant. Now, I'm going to go ahead and bridge that gap to uh, the Reformed versus Dispensational argument. When you go to the Old Testament, and prophets of God used one of their most easily recognizable words, Israel, what did they mean? Well, they meant Israel. They didn't mean the New Testament church. There's no way they meant that. In fact, they didn't mean the people of God from all generations. Because there was a time before Israel. If you go back to the time of uh, Noah or um, even before that, Adam and the generations after him, were there people of God, people who were believing, people who were reconciled to God by faith, who were justified by faith alone? Yes, there were such people. You can read through the uh, the table of nations there in, in Genesis 10, and out of those nations were there people who believed God and it was credited to them as right, righteousness? Yep. Yep. There were. Were they Israel? No. Nope. Israel didn't start until uh, God makes his covenant with Abraham. And then there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And, and though that word Israel has a meaning that's tied up into that narrative. It's defined by what God is doing in creating this nation. You can go read Deuteronomy 7, one of my favorite chapters that talks about God's creation of Israel. It's a particular nation. All right. It's not just this general vague term. It's a particular nation. And to this nation, Abraham's descendants, God has given a specific land and he's given specific promises. And throughout the Old Testament, you have, I would say, countless, though you could technically obviously count them. But from, you know, just a, a human perspective, as you gloss over the text, there are countless references to Israel. Uh, and when the word Israel is used, there's a specific meaning, a specific intent. In fact, uh, when you read prophecies about Israel that talk about the future for Israel, uh, you see that there's also a future for believing Gentiles. When God says that Israel will stray and wander, they'll be led into all sorts of nations all across the earth, they'll be in all kinds of captivity, but they will be brought back to the land and be restored to God. He also talks about there being Gentiles who will be restored. And they're not in Israel, a part of Israel, the definition of Gentile is non-Israelite, right? And there will be some of them, too, who will believe, who will be reconciled to God, who will have a future and a hope. But there are Israel-specific promises that you see in different parts of Scripture. You can go all the way back to Deuteronomy 30, the first five verses of Deuteronomy 30. So this is a, a Torah passage, foundational passage to all of Scripture that talk about the future for Israel. Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 5. And I suppose I could just look that up real quick and, and read it to you. I should have had this ready ahead of time, but it's quick enough. Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 5. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, 
Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. So you have... A bunch of references to you here, and the you is Israel. Moses had just given them the law, and he had just gone through the blessings of obeying the law, the curses that come from disobeying the law. That was very Israel-specific, this theocratic nation to live under the law as God's nation. There were blessings and curses set before them. And he says, look, I just laid it all out for you. Now, when you fail to obtain the blessing through the law, <laughs> he doesn't even really present it as an option. It's like, well, it's, it's going to happen. You're going to mess this up. And you're going to be scattered throughout the earth. There's going to come a day, this is verse 3 again, when Yahweh, your God, will restore you, Israel, from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Now, you tell me, was there any doubt in their minds what those words meant. Now, the details, sure, I'm sure there was some doubt. When, when is this going to happen, for instance? Uh, exactly how is this going to happen, step by step? God doesn't give those details. But the general idea that the nation of Israel will be scattered throughout the earth, broken down, dissipated in man's eyes, and then one day they will be brought back and reunited and restored in that very land that God gave them as a forever promise. Go back to Genesis 12 and 13 and 15 and 17. This is a forever promise that Israel would have this land. That They had no doubt about that. There was absolutely no doubt in their minds. And one more passage I'll read for you. Uh, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 to 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely, and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, As the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the north land and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they will live on their own soil. They will live on their own soil. Israel and Judah will be restored, dwell securely. There will be this amazing... Uh, trip back to the land that will supersede in prominence the exodus from Egypt. This hasn't happened yet, people. And they will come back and ha have total faith in Yahweh. They will declare with one voice, the Lord is our righteousness, and it will be a beautiful salvation of Israel in their land. Was there any doubt in Jeremiah's mind or his reader's mind what that meant? Nope. Nope. Were they interpreting soil there? This is, again, uh, Jeremiah 23, 8. Then they will live on their own soil. Did they interpret it, the soil being heaven and live being uh, an eternal spiritual immaterial existence? Or, or they being 
all God's people from all times, including a multi-ethnic New Testament church, and the soil is just heaven? No, they didn't see any of that. They understood because this is the only thing they could understand if they were just trusting God's words and not looking for hidden meanings. They understood that God was saying Israel, literal Israel, would be restored in a literal land. All right, so that's the dispensational viewpoint of that, applying the contextual, literal, grammatical, historical, hermeneutic to the text. But some Reformed guys will say the divine author had a different meaning than the human author. And so the, the human author was using words that they would understand, but that's not really what God intended. That's not what God meant. It's what the human author meant, maybe, and it's certainly what the audience inferred, but that's not what God intended. Well, there's a problem with this. Because if you start going down that line of thinking, you can make any passage in the Bible say anything you want and just say God meant it that way. The human authors, they use these words because those are the words they wanted to use or they thought they should use or whatever. Maybe you would say, yeah, God wanted him to use those specific words, but he intended something different than what they could perceive. Well, then what you have to say is that God wanted them to be confused. He wanted them to believe something different than what he said. And that's a problem. And we see that problem so clearly in the Southern Baptist situation. Why would you take this Baptist faith and message 2000 and make it mean something different than what they said? They said what was just so plain words that they knew. Why would you twist their words to mean something else? And my great fear for my Reformed brothers, and I love my Reformed brothers, I, they outdo me in so many ways. I can't understate that, okay? They outdo me in so many ways, or I can't overstate it. I mean it in the most generous way possible, okay? Uh, they, they outdo me in showing grace and love and mercy so often. They outdo me in their faithfulness, so often, I concede all of those points. They are heaven-bound believers in Jesus who are cherished by the Father because of the work of Christ, and their faith in Christ so often is a beautiful, awesome, powerful thing. Okay? I concede all of that. But I do have a fear in that they're going back to the Old Testament, just like this credentials committee is going back to the Baptist faith and message 2000 and they're twisting the words of the author. I understand that there wasn't just a human author. When Jeremiah wrote that passage, I just read for you, Jeremiah wasn't the only author. God was involved in authoring that text. There's a divine author, but to try to separate the intent of the authors and say that Jeremiah had one intent and that God had another intent that is to start to twist the word a bit. That is to start to change the narrative of the Old Testament for some reason. Because if you just take the Old Testament on its own terms and read it the way that Jeremiah wrote it and read it the way that Israel understood it, plain words with a plain meaning, you get one narrative. But if you take the Reformed interpretation of those passages, you get another narrative. And you have to see something beyond the plain meaning of words. And I think that's an error. So just as I would commend 
Al Mohler for what he's saying here. Look, <laughs> seek the authorial intent of the words in the Baptist faith and message. I'm going to challenge Al Mohler. He's never going to hear this, <laughs> but I'm challenging him. Seek the authorial intent of Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8, Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 5, and a whole bunch of other passages in the Old Testament. All right, I'm going to show, show you one more clip uh, where I think, uh, you know, we'll see again the same issue at play. This is uh, from Apologia. We've had a React video to them before. Uh, love these guys and appreciate so much of what they've done. I really love these man-on-the-street evangelism videos that they do. That's what we're about to jump into. Where Jeff Durbin is here uh, talking with another man, I think, I assume, from his church, uh, with two female LDS missionaries. And they're going to talk just briefly about what Isaiah says concerning the uniqueness of God, uh, challenging the Mormon doctrine that uh, men can become gods. Okay, so let's jump into that and let's hear what hermeneutic they apply to Isaiah and then uh, discuss that. Uh, so same, same time out. Awesome. Well, we'd love to have a chat with you. Have you had a chance to look into the doctrines that God says of himself in Isaiah, for example? Where he says in Isaiah 43.10, there were no gods before, none formed after, and he doesn't even know of any other gods. And then we look at, and we're not here because we hate to, we love you. We want everyone to have a true faith in Christ. And then Prophet Smith says in the King Paul Discourse, I don't know if you guys went through, or Hades went through that at all, to imagine and suppose that God was God from all eternity. But I will refute that idea. Take back the veil so you can see. You must learn to become gods yourselves, as all gods have done before you. Like, how do, how do we reconcile? How do you reconcile our mission? The idea that when we look at God's inspired word in Isaiah, he says of himself, none before, none after, I don't even know of another. And then Prophet Smith says, actually, some before, many after, and you can become gods or goddesses yourself in one day. Is that something? So I'm just going to pause. I think he did a great job summing it up there at the end. But just in case, you know, you couldn't hear it very well or it was too fast. In Isaiah, God clearly says, I am the only God. There is none other. Joseph Smith comes along and says, God was a man like we are now. He used to be a man, and then he became a God, so you too can also become a God. <laughs> and uh, this is not Jeff Durbin speaking right now. It's the other man from his church, uh, or at least just helping him on the street there. That man says, how do you reconcile these two things? God has plainly said he's the only God, and yet your prophet says, no, there are, there's more than one God. Why aren't you submitting to the plain meaning of the text? That's the question. And we'll hear how they respond. You sisters have had a chance to think about or, or pray about, look into? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. How, how, would you, how would you tell me, uh, I don't hate you guys, but how would you tell me, like, with genuine questions, how do you reconcile those two statements? They seem so contradictory. I don't know how they could both be true. Yeah, we just believe that through Jesus Christ we can all become perfected one day. Does that mean becoming a god? We believe as children of God that we have the potential to become like him. We all have the potential to become like our She just said, it's probably hard to hear. She just said, we believe that as children of God, we have the potential to become like our parents one day. Just as a, a girl grows up to be like her mom, uh, a son grows up to be like his father. Uh, we are literal children of God and we will grow up to be like God and we will be perfected in becoming gods. That's that's her answer. So they're not dealing with the text at all. They're just saying that's what we believe. And this, you find this all the time with Mormon missionaries. It's basically, ah, we don't really care what the text says. Uh, that's what we believe. We have the 
So I know that you're, you definitely are taught that. I, I know that's part of your, your training and your teachings. But God said, like Eric said, God said, long before Joseph came, came along, before me there was no God for him, neither shall there be after me. I'm the first, I'm the last. Joseph didn't believe either of those things. He believed that there were many gods before God, and you can become one one day. And the reason why it matters, sisters, is God says in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4, he actually gives a test of a prophet. And it's not prayer. Because our hearts can deceive, deceive us. The heart is deceitful above all things and sick beyond cure. Who can know it? That's what Jeremiah says. The test of a prophet is if he leads you after other gods, gods which you have not known. In other words, different than God's revealed. That's how you know he's a false prophet. Or if he has false prophecies, even one. Joseph had many false prophecies. He said Christ was going to return within 56 years. Uh, he said that he was going to be in the priest's office until Christ returned. He said that they were going to build a temple in Jackson County before they all passed away. He said the coming of Christ was going to be like um, like the sun rising and, 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 and destroying all the earth. Um, that, that before they all died. And so Joseph Smith fails the test of a prophet in leading you after a different God, and he had false prophecies. So that's what's important, is if God says you will not become a God after him, what would you say to him? Um, I don't know. I, I believe that I will, so... He says you won't, though. But he, do, he doesn't say that. If I, so my wife's at home with, with five... <laughs> he, I believe that I will become a God. He says you won't. Yeah, no, he doesn't. That, that was her argument, basically. Oh, man, I just recently had a really frustrating conversation with LDS missionaries. I live here in Utah, so it happens all the time with me, just like it does for our brothers down in Apologia, Apologia, technically, I suppose. Down in Arizona, they deal with this all the time, a lot of Mormons down there, and it's so frustrating. I mean, it's like, what do you say to that? God has plainly said, there was no God before me, there will be no God after me. And they said, nah, that's not what that means. It sounds to me a lot like the conversations that I have with Reform Brothers. It says plainly, Israel will be restored in their land. Nah, that's not what it means. What do you mean that's not what it means? So my encouragement, I mean, I love, again, I love what these brothers in Christ are doing. It's so helpful. And they are helping fight heresy, uphold biblical truth. It's great. My challenge is to them, the same hermeneutic you're using here in these primary doctrine battles, take it into secondary doctrine. Take it into those prophecies about eschatology that are about Israel and their future restoration. Continue that hermeneutic. It has implications. If you're going to use that hermeneutic and the realm of primary doctrine, which you should, just keep it going as you talk about eschatology. The same hermeneutic you apply to Isaiah 43.10, for example, or Isaiah 42.8, apply that same hermeneutic to Isaiah 2, where it talks about the future messianic kingdom. Or uh, in the, the, chapters of, uh, the final chapters of Isaiah in the 60s, where it talks about restoration of Israel, or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, or Daniel. Use that same hermeneutic in all of the Old Testament prophets, not just in some of the Old Testament prophets. Use that same hermeneutic in secondary doctrine, not just in primary doctrine. There is no reason to change the hermeneutical approach. There's no reason to do it because Jesus and his apostles, they used the same hermeneutic for the Old Testament passages when it came to eschatology as they did with their doctrine of theology proper, for example. They would reference, I mean, and I'm not saying there, are, there aren't hard passages. There are definitely hard passages in the New Testament where you're looking at it like, Ugh, 
Are they giving a new meaning to that Old Testament passage, yes or no? Well, I don't believe they ever gave a new meaning to an Old Testament passage, and we've got an episode where we talked with Dr. Michael Vlock on that very issue. Uh, He wrote a book called The Old in the New, Old Testament passages being used in the New Testament. How, How do we make sense of these hard passages, and how did the New Testament authors use the Old Testament? There's also a great book by Abner Chow on the same subject. His last name is C-H-O-U, Abner Chow, um, on hermeneutics. But my encouragement is, take this hermeneutic that you're using in some of these instances, whether we're talking about the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 or the Old Testament itself. The hermeneutic you're using to these documents that were preserved for us and given to us, use that same hermeneutic in all areas. Now, there's great danger in doing that because then you'll become dispensational and be the laughing stock of the world. <laughs> it's not too bad, though. It's not too bad over here. All right. That's all I wanted to do today was to, to put that together as a in, encouragement in that I love, again, what these brothers are doing. I benefit so much from their ministries, but also just a challenge. Hey, brothers, um, I see what you're doing here. Could we, could we take that hermeneutic a little farther, uh, not in changing it at all or evolving it, but just expanding its usage, applying its usage to all passages, not just some. Okay. All right. Hope that was helpful. Thanks for joining me today. And uh, hopefully we'll get Ken back on here soon uh, because it sure would be nice to have Ken around again. You don't just want to hear me. So uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on do theology.